If you backed Oxymoron's rap with Mr. Yee's music, that would probably be good. Oxy's lyrics are amazing in their depth. In my view, it's better to listen to them without the background music and just study them. He's a great talent. I just like how he composes the words and his associative flow. I really like the way he makes these quantum leaps, like an electron in an atom jumping completely suddenly from one orbit to another. That's Oxymoron's rap. And Mr. Yee, he's, he's always experimental with music, with the overdrive of sound and processing his own voice. Even now, you can hear harmony in his compositions if you take out some of the aspects of the modern processing. If you listen generally to Mr. Yee, there are some things that you could even play pretty well on a balalaika or a grand piano or on a harp. So that's pretty interesting. That was what Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rebkov had to say about Kanye West, or Mr. Yee, as he respectfully calls him. It also turns out that he's quite a fan of Lady Gaga, not just her music, but also her blossoming career as an actor. We learned about all this in an interview that was released on Thursday, January 13th, with Tina Kandalaki. The whole interview is about an hour long, but most of it's not about American pop music. Most of it is about intense negotiations between Russia and the United States and NATO this week about the future of European security. And that's what we're going to talk about on this week's podcast episode. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. On this week's episode of the podcast, we've got two guests, and we're going to be talking about the two big geopolitical news stories of the last two weeks. First, there's Peter Leonard, Eurasianet's Central Asia Editor. I'll be talking to him about last week's unrest in Kazakhstan and the military intervention by the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, mostly Russian troops, and they appear to be leaving already. So it was brief, but I'm going to be talking to Peter about the significance of that peacekeeping operation. And we'll also be joined by Fyodor Lukyanov, a prominent Russian foreign policy analyst who serves as editor-in-chief of Russian Global Affairs and who heads the Valdai Discussion Club, which advises the Kremlin. I'll be talking to him about the ongoing negotiations, or sorry, we're not supposed to call them negotiations. They are, it's a dialogue. They're talking. It's just a friendly, well, not so friendly. It's a conversation between diplomats from Moscow and diplomats from Washington and the NATO military alliance. All week they've been discussing Ukraine and NATO's future in Europe and the, the really the architecture of European security. Russia is demanding guarantees that NATO will not expand any further eastward. They want to freeze on any further deployments of American short or intermediate range missiles, and they want restrictions on military activity on the European continent. Officials in Washington have refused to grant those demands. They say NATO maintains an open-door policy. Anybody who meets their criteria, which involve democratic institutions and market economics and so on, has the right to apply, has the right to join. NATO will not close its doors. Those are the talking points.
If you go on Google right now, or Yandex, or Bing, wherever your whatever your heart desires, and enter the phrase "What Putin Really Wants," you will see that there is an entire genre of news commentary with this exact headline, or with slight alterations. I think it's particularly interesting because, on one hand, nobody really knows what Putin wants. You, you know, unless you're his psychologist, and even then, good luck, right? It's hidden inside his head, and nobody knows what he's going to do until he does it. He's a maverick, after all, right? That's the that's what people say. And on the other hand, everybody knows what Putin wants. He, he he's very consistent, saying what he he'd like geopolitically from from NATO, certainly. And so, what are we talking about? We all we all know what he wants. So you can see why there's so much conversation generated here, since the opportunity for polemics is pretty broad. But clearly, there's a lot of interest in getting to the bottom of Putin's motivations. Before we get to the interviews on this week's show, I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing some interesting op-eds and analytical essays that came out in the last week that are not about what Putin wants, but about how the Kremlin sees the White House, how it sees the Biden administration, how it sees the United States generally. And some of this will play into the conversation you'll hear later with Lukyanov. So let me set the stage for you. The first text is written by National Research University Higher School Economics International Relations Deputy Director. Woof, that is a long title. The man's name, though, is Dmitry Novikov. Novikov says that decision makers in Moscow have essentially decided that the Biden administration is a transitional presidency, which means that Moscow believes that a new kind of American political system is taking shape in Washington right now, and that's changing the nation's role globally. In addition to that, partisan battles make Biden a weak negotiating partner, particularly when considering agreements that would require ratification you know, by the legislature. And this makes it particularly tricky, given that Russia is now demanding security guarantees that it also presumably believes Biden can't really deliver. So essentially, Moscow is calibrating its relationship with the Biden administration right now, anticipating that as soon as later this year, he'll be a lame duck. And in 2024, he may not even get a chance to run for re-election, or he'll, he'll lose re-election. So when it comes to understanding Russia's time frame for its negotiations with NATO and Washington this week, and how it perceives its partners in the White House, many in the Kremlin think they're dealing with people in Washington now who won't even be in power in a couple of years. So what does that mean for what they expect to get out of this week's negotiations or the negotiations that have, they've started this week? I'm not sure. Novikov doesn't get into that in his essay. But what about the long term? Well, there's another article that came out this week by Russian International Affairs Council Director General Andrei Kartunov that raises some very interesting points about how Russia views history moving forward. After an introduction where he laments that the 1990s were this amazing opportunity where Russia could have achieved a kind of Western integration, he says that Russia could have become an alternate West, something like what Poland is in modern Europe today. It didn't happen. Too bad. Very sad. And now we've got to deal with the discrepancies in worldviews that have emerged in the last 30 years. But the word discrepancies is a, a bit of a euphemism, because the way he describes it, the worldviews are now so fundamentally different on each side that essentially Russia and the West are just kind of waiting for each other to collapse. The West thinks that Russia is just this fragile, economically and technologically backward nation, a dictatorship that simply cannot last. While Russia looks at Western society as divided, it's falling behind China economically, and it's crippled by public distrust in state institutions and democracy, really, in general. And he doesn't get into this, but imagine, that, that, imagine the confidence that that would fill you with if you think your counterpart from the other side is basically an emissary of a kind of 
dying, dwindling power. It doesn't give you strong motivations to make compromises or even to take them very seriously. And if you look at the rhetoric, the official rhetoric coming from the media on each side and the public officials on each side, I think Kartuna has really nailed it here. Kremlin officials and state news talking heads say over and over again that the West has lost its way, it's too woke, cancel culture, etc. Putin is obsessed with cancel culture, as if he were worried about getting canceled himself, <laughs> as if that were possible. And obviously Russia has, it's easy to exaggerate, but obviously Russia has turned in many ways to China, having fallen out with Europe and the West. And that's not to say that, you know, they're not vacationing in the French Riviera still and all that. So that's why I caution against exaggerating the turn to China. But there's been a measurable pivot. It's part of the narrative. And from the Western perspective, not only is it easy to be accused of appeasement just for sitting down and talking to Russian diplomats. In fact, the very idea of engagement, some criticize as a gift to Putin, something that adds legitimacy to his dictatorship and prolongs its inevitable collapse. Now, as Lukyanov will tell you in a few minutes, the actual dialogue between diplomats is not about existential crisis or a clash of civilizations. But I think Kartunov gets at something in the discourse here. So while you're following the diplomacy this week and in weeks to come, keep that in mind. Another text published at Russia and Global Affairs, which is Lukanov's publication, but I didn't ask him about this one, an essay by Peer Center consultant Alexander Kolbin. And let me tell you, this one was out there, I thought, but it gets at a similar issue present in Kartunov's essay, this idea of national confidence. Now, in Kolbin's article, Russia is actually suffering from a lack of confidence. He calls it geopolitical self-censorship. He says the Kremlin has tried to pursue its national interests without the same conceptual framework that underpins the Western and the Chinese worlds, or the Chinese and Western spheres of influence is another way to put it. For the past 20 years, essentially, Russia has been stuck merely hinting that it has a right to a larger world, to its own sphere of influence. Colbin says that the Kremlin's recent ultimatum on Russian dominance of the former USSR, or at least the former USSR that hasn't already been added to NATO, he says it's a big step in the direction of rejecting national self-censorship. But Russia still lacks the ideological chops to articulate a coherent, attractive framework for expansionism. And that's something that he says Washington, London, or Beijing, they've got it already. They have that confidence, they have that coherent ideology, which provides a legitimate basis for the cultural, economic, and military expansion. In other words, Colbin says that Russia needs to formulate its own set of positive meanings for each instance of expansion. Right now, it just doesn't have the language that allows it to explain to the world and to the people receiving its influence that this is for the best. And gosh darn it, we have a right to do it. Now, I admit it's pretty wild to see somebody talking about expansion <laughs> in these rosy terms, right? We all... We all need an expansionist ideology, right? I mean, have you got yours yet? But if you consider it the rationale for staking your claim on your corner of the world, I do think Colbin's onto something here in terms of what the Russian leadership thinks it's trying to do right now. And the boldness of this effort, the audacity, it also, I think, explains why it's so shocking to the West. Russia's demands seem like the prelude to World War III. This is what they're asking is unthinkable. You know, this is an affront to what the West believes is legitimate. So in other words, it's competing ideas about legitimacy. I think this is a, it's an interesting perspective on the, on the current tensions between Russia and the West in Europe. All right, grab your globe, everybody, or 
pull up a, a tablet and spin Google or Apple Maps or whatever. We're leaving Europe now, and we're heading over to Central Asia, to Kazakhstan, where last week, on January 2nd, in response to suddenly doubled fuel prices, demonstrations began that quickly gathered momentum and spread to many cities across the country, and soon escalated to violent clashes with police and looting and rioting, and it was mayhem. President Tokayev fired his whole government cabinet, he restored some price controls, and he declared a state of emergency. In a surprising move, after a few days, he appealed to the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization and asked for a peacekeeping operation, and he got it. Now, to manage this, because of the rules of the CSTO, he had to argue that Kazakhstan was actually under attack by terrorist gangs who had trained abroad. And on that technicality, the leaders of the CSTO member states agreed to send troops. Medusa covered the demonstrations and the riots extensively, but I can tell you that I'm not a Kazakhstan or Central Asia expert, and that's why I was very happy when Eurasianet's Central Asia editor, Peter Leonard, agreed to come on The Naked Pravda to talk a bit about the significance of Kazakhstan's week of unrest. I don't think uh, they needed the CSTO troops at all. I mean, we don't exactly know how many CSTO troops were even deployed. I mean, the, the estimates that have been thrown out are anywhere between 2,000 and 3,500 thereabouts, which is not an inconsiderable number, but it's hardly the amount that you would, that there's going to, that it doesn't represent a huge number considering the uh, Kazakhstan, in theory, has uh, a 100,000 uh, person army available. Um, no. The value of the CSTO here was clearly to provide moral support. Why moral support was uh, required in this situation is obviously then the follow-up question because because if it was uh, just a matter of uh, putting down, quelling a local uprising, then you wouldn't think the, uh, the support of a, an outside party would necessarily be required. However, if the scenario is, as seems more likely, that there were parties inside the security apparatus inside Kazakhstan uh, who were uh, defecting, scheming against Tokayev, or uh, uh, um, in fact plotting a, a violent seizure of the of the state, as, as as is now being claimed, then obviously the involvement of the CSTO, for which we obviously read Russia, um, then takes on a very different complexion. Does that mean that? that Tokayev possibly invited the CSTO in because he feared not so much the protesters, but a, a palace coup or something, and that he thought, if I, get the, if, I, if I can be signed off on by, essentially, Moscow, then that would, that'll bolster my claim to the throne or something? Or Yes, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that um, once you have Russian troops on the ground, if you are a plotter, hoping to take over the government in Kazakhstan, you are no longer plotting against President Tokayev and whoever is loyal to him, but you're plotting against Tokayev, the people who are loyal to him, and uh, the, the might of the Russian government and army, uh, which is a different proposition altogether. Do you have any, do, do you know exactly, I mean, you've said that we don't even know how many CS2 troops were actually sent into Kazakhstan. They were supposedly deployed to protect infrastructure, I know that they, I think they were at the airport, they were at the, the, the spaceport. Did they literally just get off their plane, walk somewhere and stand around and get back on the plane and now they're leaving again? Or did they, was there, were there any incidents involving use of force or anything like that? Or was it just really just a, a big parade and, and, and the messaging you described? I think it was pretty much for show. I mean, that they were essentially deployed to 
protect the the airport in Almaty, where most of the violence happened, um, and uh, some key government installations. From what I understand, things like, for example, the headquarters of the security services also in, in Almaty, things like military warehouses was what we were told in, in press statements. But other than that, they weren't involved. I mean, they were specifically not involved in any active operations on the ground to quell the uprising, for instance. So there was no, there's no, there was no issue of them coming into contact with with the with the local population i mean that having been said they were out and about on the streets they were guarding buildings so you know it wasn't like they were completely invisible i mean they were there and seen and i think you may have even possibly seen some photos in fact i believe the wall street journal ran a very uh, nice photo of a russian soldier standing guard and a, a very suspicious looking uh, young kazakh woman walking past so you know those kind of contacts have happened but yes i mean that their role was a a strictly a static defensive one rather than getting involved in any operations even though thank goodness i suppose there was no shooting or anything like that for by the the cst peacekeepers and so on do you think this intervention was it a like a watershed moment in central asian regional politics because it was you know the a lot of the, the the reactions to russia changing its policy, essentially, that they decided to go ahead and, I mean, this is the first time, as I understand it, that the CSTO has sent peacekeepers anywhere, and Russia has recently said no to Kyrgyzstan and to also basically to Armenia, and kind of, they've, they've been reluctant to do this sort of thing. And this peacekeeping mission itself seems fairly reluctant in terms of exactly what was actually done. But was this like, is this like the new, is this a new era in in Central Asia? Is, like, is Russia back, baby? Like, what are we, what are we looking at? I'm kind of nervous about overstating my views on this because uh, I would say so. And uh, okay, so as far as it marks a watershed for the CSTO, obviously, because it's not been deployed on any active operation before. And this was a very small operation. Nevertheless, it marks kind of the first occasion that it's actually been called into action and it sprung into action and it did so very quickly. I think the the almost the logistical aspect of, of getting thousands of troops out there and not just troops, but also, um, you know, APCs and, and, and planes and, and I, I, that aspect of the operation is almost kind of seems more uh, sort of significant in as much as it sort of showed. I think it was a kind of a wave for Russia to say, well, this is what it'll look like when we are needed. We can move thousands of troops and dozens of heavy bits of machinery, you know, all the way across a, a, a continent-sized country in a matter of hours if, if we wish to do so. So, yes, I guess as the Central Asia person, uh, yes, I, I feel like there's definitely a watershed moment here for the region in that I'd say I sense in small ways in Central Asia uh, creeping. I don't say nationalism, but I think that there is a a maturing kind of sense of sovereign identity, um, which it's been 30 years, but uh, I think it's been, it's taken a long time to sort of germinate and develop and and, uh, mature. And I feel like the region is reaching that point where it wants to have a reckoning, I think, with its uh, colonial past, with its Soviet past. And so you see it in these sort of little ways, whether it's, or big ways, depending on how you look at it, whether it's memorializing the tragedies of the Soviet Union, for instance, the mass killings of, of Kazakhs in the, in the collectivization era of the 1930s. You have the same sort of rhetoric, not just in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan as well. And so 
uh, I think this is a whole sort of theme that's um, emerged and developed and I think that makes Russia very uncomfortable. And there's lots of other kind of, you know, similar sort of cultural themes that I think have, have, have emerged. And I think that um, in a way, not to overstate it, but I think that I feel like this moment is perhaps Russia reminding the region where loyalties should lie. And I think that by having seized the moment in this crisis so so effectively and so rapidly, I think that it's the message has been sent quite clearly that when push comes to shove, know who your friends are and don't uh, get ideas above your station and don't be ungrateful. So that would explain why Russia is willing to up its its interventions within the region. Why would the, all the other CSTO members sign on to this? Like if they if they're having sovereignty moments and if they are getting the message from Russia that Moscow is saying, "Oh, step back, everybody!" Like you know, we're we're still in charge here. Why did they get? Why did everybody fall in line so quickly? Well, I mean, I, what would be the upside of refusing? I, I, I mean, it's a good question. I, I don't really have a clear answer to it, but I, I think that um, obviously the implications of saying to Russia no would would be pretty grave for any, any of the other members. I mean, I can speak to Central Asia. The other members of the CSTO in Central Asia are, there's only two of them, there's uh, uh, Tajikistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan, other than Kazakhstan. Both of those countries have economies which are overwhelmingly dependent on Russia because so many migrant laborers live in Russia and so much trade and their economies are so kind of closely intertwined. There's a simple kind of realpolitik kind of logic underlying that. So I, I think when people comply with these sort of, with the, with these kind of developments, it, it doesn't, I think, don't think too much should be read into it. But, you know, it's complicated. It's always kind of wheels within wheels. I mean, obviously, Tajikistan and Russia, for instance, are are allies, but there's also a very heavy dose of distrust between these nations. And, and uh, it just depends which particular theme you want to kind of um, single out for analysis. You might kind of see areas in which they're, they're very cordial and very friendly and others where, you know, there's great suspicion. Coming back to Kazakhstan, there have been a lot of comparisons made between the two political systems. And in, in Russia, it's been particularly interesting to people because a lot of people look at Nazarbayev losing his, uh, his chairmanship of the Kazakhstani Security Council, and they say, oh, well, this is the nail in the coffin for any hopes that Putin would ever retire to something like the state council or some grandfatherly role on the sidelines because Nazarbayev tried it and look where he ended up now. Like Putin's going to, this is like a cautionary tale for, for Putin. So he'll never do this now. So we're going to have, we're stuck with Putin for life. Are the political systems similar enough for that kind of comparison to hold any water? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I, rather than looking at the political systems, I mean, I'd kind of start by uh, going from the bottom up and, and confronting the the political societies and the civil societies of the two countries. And I, I, I think that in that sense, they are quite dissimilar in that Kazakhstan has still a very weak civil society, I think a very kind of politically unsophisticated society. I, I say that at the risk of sounding kind of to patronizing, but the level of kind of political discourse is weak because the, the even free media having been crushed in Russia to the extent that it has been is still, I would say, in a healthier state than it is in, in Kazakhstan. So that whole sort of component is, is lacking in Kazakhstan. 
So when all of these kind of um, high-tier political kind of machinations take place, you know, when one president says, well, I'm going to step aside and I'm going to put in another president, it, it, it doesn't have to account for what the population has to say about it. It doesn't have to worry too much about the intelligentsia and, and kind of the intelligentsia within the kind of the uh, sort of a regime community in Russia. I mean, it, it doesn't sort of the same series of dynamics don't don't operate. Looking from the top down, I mean, the similarities are, of course, a lot stronger. So you do have, you know, it's a very hyper-presidential system, parliament, which is kind of a, a joke. You know, all of these things are very super kind of consensual political system. Uh, and in that respect, uh, the parallels are sort of sort of there. They're sort of there. But uh, again, I mean, the, the political class is, is far narrower in Kazakhstan, by which I mean, you know, even as an all-powerful politician, Putin has to deal with, you know, huge amounts of kind of different vying constituencies regionally within Moscow itself. Uh, it's this unbelievable kind of network of kind of uh, competing interests in Kazakhstan. I think that the political system is much, much more vertical in that sense and that there's... Uh, even though Russia has kind of gutted local government or did kind of go through a phase of gutting local government, Kazakhstan has never really had local government. I mean, all local government has always been uh, handpicked. I wouldn't say doomed, so that's a little bit, it's an exaggeration, but certainly the optic uh, from Russia is that uh, the West is in decline, both in terms of a geopolitical influence and um, supremacy, and in terms of uh, civilizational uh, dominance in the world. That's Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor-in-chief of Russia and Global Affairs and the research director of the Foundation for Development and Support of the Valdai Discussion Club. I asked him about that essay I summarized at the top of the show by Andrei Kartunov about Russia and the West seeing each other as essentially doomed civilizations. So according to the worldview, which is uh, very much widespread here, the Western age in international affairs or just in world situation uh, is over, not just because of a uh, significant decline of the West, but because of the rise of, uh, of the rest of others, of China and the rest of uh, non-Western world, which means that the world situation will change pretty rapidly in decades to come. So in this regard, yes, uh, the West is seen as, uh, as a former hegemon which experienced the culmination of its might after the Cold War. And uh, this unipolar, uh, Western unipolar moment, as uh, Charles Krauthammer predicted, did last for approximately 20, 25 years, as he wrote in his famous article about unipolar moment in 1990. And now it's over. Now it's over. Now we are heading towards a completely new situation. That's how it is viewed from, from Moscow. Certainly, I, I know that Russia is viewed 
in a mirror way in the West as a country which objectively cannot have any perspectives because of uh, not just dictatorship and outdated political system, but uh, demographics and economic model. And to what extent this picture does influence the ongoing political relationship? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, the unwillingness to give up, which is present on both sides. But at the same time, I don't think we need to hyperbolize, so to, to make this philosophical view too much as factor of, of ongoing negotiations, because at the end of the day, what is being discussed now in Geneva, in Brussels, everywhere, it's not about civilizations, it's about very practical things, very practical elements of uh, European security as it emerged a couple of decades ago. And it's not about long-term world uh, order anymore. It's rather about tactical uh, maneuvering and understanding how we can survive this uh, more and more turbulent period. So one of the things that I've, I've been reading in the last week is that in these, this dialogue, the U.S. Is, is coming at this with very technical solutions that are meant not to change kind of the larger security status quo in Europe. And Russia is coming saying, no, well, we want a fundamental revision or revisitation of the security consensus that ex has existed since the fall of the, of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. That would seem to clash with what you just said, because you're, you're saying that this is, this is about specific issues. Would that mean that Russia in, these in these, this dialogue is in fact coming with very concrete issues? Or is that in the talks, it sounds like they are coming at this with almost like a civilizational level kind of discussion. But you're saying that that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. There are different levels of specific issues. So certainly it's not about civilizational debate. Not at all. Uh, it's not, but at the same time, it's not about technicalities. It's not about uh, some concrete issues about which weaponry and which uh, military forces can be placed where. That's approximately what Americans would like to discuss out of a whole setup, whole menu of Russian uh, demands. Americans uh, did choose uh, this one. Okay. Let's look at this. Maybe we can find some solution. And that uh, would bring uh, the whole discussion back to the framework of classical uh, conventional arms control talks uh, uh, from the Cold War or immediate post-Cold War time, like CFE and so on. It's not what Russia wants. And in this regard, yes, Russia wants uh, a much broader and much deeper approach. But it's not civilizational. It's a very practical thing about uh, how to understand security in this region. A Russian, Russian idea is, uh, as you rightly said, to revise the uh, security arrangements, which emerged after the Cold War, immediately after the Cold War, which presume that the core of the whole security system in Europe is NATO or broader Euro-Atlantic institutions. And enlargement of those institutions, this is actually uh, 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 strengthening and enhancement of uh, a security system. Russia was not in favor of that, but Russia or initially Soviet Union 
basically accepted that when the uh, Soviet Union signed the uh, Paris Charter for New Europe and then Russia as successor continued with this endorsement. And we see that even uh, now in those big statements and the drafts, uh, you can find references to the Paris Charter, which from my point of view is very strange because what we demand is exactly this to denounce Paris. But this is not about some particular security or confidence building measures as Americans would uh, prefer to, to discuss. But this is about principles. And the principle is whether military alliance has right and capacity to basically enhance and enlarge without any limits. And that was laid down in, in uh, basically in negotiations about German uh, uh, reunification and then Paris Charter. That's what Russia wants to change. It's not existential, it's not uh, civilizational, it's not philosophical, but it's not technical either. In an essay that you authored, I guess it was about a week ago, it was on January 6th about the CSTO intervention in Kazakhstan, you pointed out that conservative regimes like the Kremlin today have seized, the, have sort of seized the, the torch from liberal democracies when it comes to articulating the grounds for uh, military interventions and the erosion of boundaries between domestic and foreign issues. You know, the West would claim human rights abuses and then they'd go in somewhere. And now Moscow can claim something like regional security or the stability of neighbors. And this reminded me of an article that uh, Dmitry Trenin wrote a day later where he made, he made this statement where he said that uh, Sergei Shoigu, when he recently said that the U.S. smuggled chemical weapons in eastern Ukraine or something, he said, well, you know, that may have just been the, the Russian defense ministry sort of signaling that it can also draw on the same sort of you know, instruments that the West has used in the past to justify its military interventions. And so my question is, like, is this phenomenon in Russian messaging do you think it's just rhetorical? Like, is it, it's, I've seen it referred to as like trolling. They're trolling the West. Or is it uh, part of like a more coherent ideology? Is, it, is Russian diplomacy or strategic thinking, is it about kind of like seizing some kind of like logic for itself as it acts globally? Or is it, is it again, is it just kind of a, a diplomatic trolling sort of thing? As for uh, Shaigu's statement, uh, I don't know. I would rather... Uh interpret it as as a, as a way of trolling but i think that kazakhstan is different kazakhstan is different it's not about trolling it's not about attempts to so to say mirror western position as happens sometimes as it happens sometimes it's about russian perception and russian conviction that we need to make efforts to avoid destabilization of uh, neighboring areas and this is actually the very old and very consistent position that strengthening of regimes, existing regimes, whatever they are, is better for the long-term stability of uh, countries and regions than to try to change them, as Americans did in the Middle East and uh, supported in uh, so-called Cold revolutions in uh, post-Soviet area. So this is a very principled position on the Russian side, which has not, uh, with one exception, it was one exception which ended up catastrophically, I mean, Libya, when Russia suddenly supported intervention or not, did, did not prevent intervention in, in Libya. 
But that was the only case. Otherwise, uh, be it anywhere, be it uh, Latin America, Middle East, post-Soviet area, or uh, South, uh, Southeast Asia, Russia is in favor of uh, strengthening existing rule and uh, avoid changes which can derail status quo and generate problems. Here in Kazakhstan, it's very understandable because uh, Kazakh collapse of the statehood in Kazakhstan, unlike um, many believe that uh, some people in Russia would love to see that because that would create a golden opportunity to, so to say, to readjust borders. There are some people who think this, but in uh, in general, I think the collapse of Kazakhstan or chaos in Kazakhstan would create so many problems for Russia of different kind that uh, it should be avoided by any means. And this means suddenly not so many people expected CSTO to become a real instrument, real alliance, but suddenly it uh, showed to be uh, efficient. Uh, of course, the fact that uh, uh, troops are uh, being withdrawn uh, five or six days after introduction, uh, that's quite interesting. But actually, I think it, it did play a role. It did play a role to send a very clear message. We support this rule. If somebody wants to overthrow it, they will have to do with, uh, with Russia. And that was enough to, so to say, to stabilize, as it was in Belarus uh, 2020. It was no intervention, but it was very clear warning from Putin that uh, it's not up to you to decide who is in charge in your country. And I think that this is a, a product not just of changing Russian policy, it's product of changing international environment. Because the regime change, uh, pro-democracy regime change is over. And uh, even United States uh, has abandoned this idea, at least at the uh, applicable and the applied level. You have written that it could take further, some sort of further dangerous escalation before Russia and the West are able to bridge their current perception gap and uh, on European security, I mean. How much escalation do you think it, 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 it might need to take before compromise is possible? Because like right now, it looks like they're so irreconcilable in terms of their positions. Like do you, are you, when you say that more danger is needed before the, their perception gap is, closes, do you, is, is that you know another 1,000 dead? Is it 10,000, 100,000? Like what, what, I know this, I'm asking you kind of to look into a crystal ball and, and guess, but how serious of an escalation do you think it, it, it could require before... Americans or you know, I, I'm not going that far. I don't believe that escalation means uh, uh, thousands or ten thousands or hundred thousands of deaths. Escalation or demonstration of force has always been a, actually a normal uh, part of diplomacy for centuries, and it was our illusion after the Cold War that now things can be settled in a different way. But that was an illusion. So now we, we, we are back to, to, to normal. Unpleasant, but normal. So I don't believe that we will end up uh, with a real war. But talking about escalation or confrontation, I mean that in such kind of uh, dialogue, which Americans uh, and Russians are now engaged in, uh, science, that's like a game a little bit. Uh, science should prove uh, constantly on a daily basis almost that they are ready to go 
very far. It does not mean that they will go, but bluffing and uh, a little bit of blackmail, that's another part of the rules of the game. And quite interestingly, the whole Western uh, debate around this uh, situation is uh, entirely focused on Ukraine. That uh, escalation is uh, equal to Russian invasion into Ukraine. I'm not sure why. What Russia is trying to achieve is actually not about Ukraine. Ukraine is, uh, is a very important case, uh, vitally concerning for Russia for understandable reasons. But it's not about Ukraine. It's not about, uh, about to say, to address Ukrainian issue. It's about principles of uh, security system in Europe. And if we look at this from a distance, disregarding some statements made these days, actually what is going on is an attempt to revise the regional order without a war, which is unprecedented. We have no such uh, examples in the, in the past because all European orders emerged after wars. Okay. Last time it was cold war, but still war. And now, since I hope that the real war is impossible due to nuclear arms and other circumstances. So it should be some kind of replacement for war, substitute for war, which uh, can be needed. And, uh, okay, many colleagues here, they uh, rem uh, remember the Cuban Missile Crisis as a model. Uh, frankly, I have not enough imagination to uh, constru construct what kind of Cuban Missile Crisis can happen today and where. But the scale, the level of tension in order to step up to the next level of uh, negotiations might be comparable. And in this regard, uh, that's why I believe that so far, first step has been made that uh, a Russian extremely vocal and sometimes eccentric position was due to, uh, to formulate in a way which cannot be ignored. Because that, that's the, unfortunately the fact, and Putin has right uh, saying that all previous ideas produced in Russia and uh, introduced from Russia, they were simply ignored, not just rejected, ignored. About security, about treaties, about... No, 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 we don't need to discuss it. And this time it's, it's different, so it's, it's, it's impossible to ignore. So first step has been made, so we will see what will follow. But it seems that Russia is really very serious about not to allow this conversation to be back to military technicality. It's not about that this time. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from Eurasianet's Central Asia editor, Peter Leonard, about Kazakhstan's recent unrest and the CSTO peacekeeping mission in the country. And foreign policy expert Fyodor Dukanov answered questions about the Kremlin's current diplomatic and geopolitical thinking. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. I say this at the end of every show, and I'm sure there are fewer people listening, but this helps put the program in front of more people. Maybe I'll start putting this at the beginning of the episode. Would you still listen? Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, both in English or either in English or in Russian or both, Please make a donation at support.meduza.io slash en, or you can leave out that last bit if you'd like to see it in Russian. You can go there 
to help us sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but uh, we'll take whatever you can spare. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.